0: Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. I'm Costas Hall of Raisins. Today, Clary Croft, author of My Charmed Life. There's a fine line between Renaissance man and freelancer trying to pay the rent. In Clary Croft's case, there's no line at all. By mastering several arts, he has lived by his wits, that is, without a full-time employer, for more than half a century. Depending on your interests, you might know him as a musician, weaver, folklorist, actor, clothing designer, writer, archivist, impresario, or, in a word we'll explore later, popularizer of traditional music compiled by the late Helen Creighton. Clary is an admitted Type A personality, but quick to remind us, his wife, Sharon, has been a full partner in many of his endeavors, which he describes in his new memoir, My Charmed Life in Music, Art, and Folklore. Clary, welcome to Book Me.
1: Well, it's absolutely delightful to be here, Costas.
0: Your life frequently loops back to where it began in the village of Sherbrooke, Nova Scotia. Looking back, what was charmed about your origins?
1: the freedom i had to express myself i i was just down in sherbrooke and did a reading down there and uh, talking to relatives and friends and many of the people that i worked with in the historic village and we were, were talking about that of how how i was given such license to sing and dance and do art and perform but not on a professional level, but just within my family, my, my, the nuclear family that I had, especially my great-grandparents, uh, uh, Ed and, and Cora Burns. They were so encouraging and so open to having a kid, especially a boy, be artistic. I would dance for them. I would I would sing for them all the time. In fact, it was my great grandmother who taught me some of my earlier songs. Uh, she who also taught Wilf Carter some of his earlier songs. <laughs> the same the same woman, and it was always that that ability to feel safe in being an artist, and I think because my great-grandfather Burns was a visual artist and was a musician, unfortunately, I never heard him play the fiddle because his hands were too arthritic by that time, but but certainly my my great-grandmother was quite a singer and played organ in the Baptist Church, but it was that ability to never think, oh, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't be creative, I shouldn't try to make something out of paper and
0: felt and whatever whatever it was, I, I was just given carte blanche. Like thousands of kids, uh, you sang in choirs, then in a band with some pals, but at 18, just as you were in the process of applying to the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, instead, you turned pro, with your parents' blessing again. Tell us about the privateers.
1: Well, the privateer, the privateer itself was a coffee house, and it was the quintessential coffee house of the 1960s, moving into the, the 70s. And I started to go there when I was with the group The Silver Change, still in high school. And out of that came the uh, want of us to all gather around and go out and sing at the Halifax Shopping Centre one Christmas. Yeah. And out of that, there's a long story in the book about how that evolved, <laughs> but uh, out of that came this group that was a large group, and then gradually moved. Morphed into those of us that wanted to go professional, and we got a wonderful musical director in the in the in the, the, the way of Robbie McNeil, and, and a great uh, manager and 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 movement director in in Ray Pierce. So we we really worked hard at being professional, and in fact we were billed as Canada's only professional folk chorus. And because of the, I think I was always had a good work ethic, and because of that, and and what we saw, my parents were very fine with that. And again, Costas, I was only 18, so. They were, they were saying, okay, you know, so, so you. I think nowadays you might call it a gap year. But my parents were, were saying, sure, go and give it a try. Our college or wherever you want to go, eventually, we'll be there for you.
0: Must have been lovely to have that kind of license from your parents.
1: Was absolutely wonderful and of course by that time I was quite an independent young man I was basically living on my own well aside from the fact that I had a basement apartment in my parents home and then when I eventually after the privateers uh, became more professional I moved into a $15 room in in Halifax and uh, my mother did my laundry and, and sent home groceries and, but I was a pretty independent kind of guy
0: <laughs> but the privateers really did get around I mean you played the the Mariposa festival uh, the same time as a, a young singer named Joni Mitchell was playing playing on that bill, uh, yeah. you traveled yeah. to the U.S., uh, to Osaka, representing Canada. Yeah. I was going to say, life on the road is some kind of dream fantasy, still is, for many young musicians. But what about you? Yeah.
1: It uh, <laughs> it was fun. It's fun when you're young, but when you start having commitments and you start, it, 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 it's, it's some people still love it. I mean, my goodness, look at J.P. Cormier. He's on the road all the time, and, and and you know Matt Minglewood. They they seem to they seem to thrive on the road. Uh, I didn't. I I loved meeting people. I loved the travel, but I didn't like you know waking up and sort of thing. Where am I today and this sort of stuff. But I loved the experiences. And one of the experiences I didn't write about in the book is that the Mariposa folk. Festival afterwards uh, because Robbie had lived in, in Toronto he knew a lot of the musicians and we went to a folk club And uh, we went upstairs, and there was a young uh, singer-songwriter there uh, who said uh, knew Robbie, and and he he said, I want to play some of my songs, and maybe you guys would like to sing some of them. Uh, We never did pick up any of Bruce Coburn's tunes, but uh, (laughs) it's that that kind of thing. That's life on the road, is, is that if you expose yourself to other things, it's a tremendous learning experience.
0: Well, then came TV for you and another level of exposure on the show that really launched uh, many careers, Sing Along Jubilee. How did that change things for you?
1: absolutely hugely a it was a regular paycheck it was national exposure and of course that opened up more things that opened up recording contracts that opened up doors that i never would have thought would open up it would open up you know you get a call from the juliet show saying can you come up and do that and those kinds of things and and had i wanted to pursue it even more i probably could have but i was interested in developing a a work style here in in the maritimes and when i first started out with the privateers and and sing-along i sort of about, okay, I'd really like to be an international star, I have my own TV show and stuff like that, and I realized early on uh, that I didn't want to make that kind of commitment where you are working 24 seven, trying to be the next thing. And I saw that I, and, and I do not criticize them at all, but I saw that when I saw Anne's, who has tremendous work ethic and Anne Murray you know, Catherine McKinnon, uh, Gene McClellan, you know, the next, the next hit song, there was, there was a, an urgency that I didn't want my life to fill. That's easy to say, you know, as I say in the book, you know, it's easy to say, no, I didn't, I didn't pursue it. Well, if you didn't pursue it because you couldn't have had it, I don't know. But I, I realized early on, when you get off the stage at a performance with Along Jubilee, which happened to me the first time we went out and did a live show, and somebody shoves a baby in your face and says, kiss him, he's on television, <laughs> you sort of think, it's not me. <laughs> And, and, and you know that from, from, from all of the work that, that you do. It's, it's that there's a certain cachet that comes with any form of notoriety or, or celebrity, is that, that somebody wants to scratch a little bit off to hold it in their hand.
0: At several points in your career, you really had to make it clear to people that you weren't being apologetic for deciding to make your life work in this region, what some yeah. people might call a small pond.
1: Yeah, exactly. But, but this was the pond that I, it's like a, you know, I'm sure it's like a, a duck, you know, you fly in and you think, okay, this one's going to work for me because has everything I want. Uh, I, I realized early on, I remember years ago uh, I w- when I was first working at, at Sherbrooke Village and, and Harris, Sull- uh, Harris Sullivan came down and interviewed me for, um, uh, at that time it was, was ATV, uh, some sort of show they were doing, and we we're walking along and, and he said, well, no, uh, he said, do, uh, do you hope to make it? And I, and I was walking along with him <laughs> and I said, oh, I made it. I, I'm, I'm earning a living doing the kind of music I want to do and, and having a lifestyle that I want. And I remember him stopping, we were walking up by the church, and he, I remember him stopping, looking at me, and he said, I'm going to use that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, I, I must say, you were also brave enough in this book to include pictures of outfits designed for you when you were on Sing Along Jubilee, and also to talk about uh, your prematurely thinning hair.
1: You know, it's sort of—it's sort of like uh, uh, the age-old thing. If you—if you want to head them off at the pass, you have to get <laughs> to there first. <laughs> so, if these things—if these things are going to surface. I'm going to be the one to talk about them first. And, and honestly, you know, Costas, I, I was noticeably used, losing my hair thinning by the time I was 19. So I either had to decide that I was going to go the wig or the toupee or something like that, or just deal with it. And I think because I wasn't trying to be the cute boy singer... Um, I was I was a cute boy singer when I was young. I was cute, <laughs> but you know, then, then you decide, okay, this is this is the real me. This is this is the authentic me. It wouldn't it would never feel authentic if I had like the the, the Hank Snow rug on top of my head.
0: <laughs> but you also had a, a magician working on your hair named Jim Michelli.
1: Oh. What a sweet man jim shelley the cbc makeup artist uh he was not only was he a, a, just a, a magician working in, in makeup and, and hair and things like that but he was one of the nicest gentlest sweetest people i don't know a soul that when you when you mention the name jim michelle they don't get a big smile on their face he was a really lovely person but as i say in the book you know there was a time when me and patricia Ann and gene mcclellan for various reasons trish with her cancer treatment and gene and i just out of genetics uh were had very thin hair and jim would do this little dab of on with the with the makeup and then comb it over and stuff like that so on television it looked like it wasn't as bad as it really was and then after a while you just say, "Oh look." this is me,
0: let's just go with it. Sing Along and the cast and the production crew taught you a lot about TV, and you would eventually go on to pitch pilots of shows and to audition for shows. But I guess as a lifelong freelancer, you underline the fact you really need to learn to deal with rejection. How early did you realize you really had to grow a thick skin?
1: That's a, that's an interesting, I, I never really thought of how early it was. You know what the, the, the problem is, is that things came to me so easily in the early days. You know, in, in high school, then you end up in high society, and then you get picked for these things. And then the silver change and the privateers and then sing-along jubilee. I really didn't see any sort of what I would call rejection until after... Sing Along Jubilee. When there were you, you would you would write to the various television shows or something like that and say, "Are you interested in having me?" Because I didn't have a manager. There was only a couple of times that I had anybody managing me, and that maybe might have lasted a few months. I, I I sort of never really thought about it as as rejection. Like after I started to do some commercials and acting and stuff like that, you go out. It, it is what it is. You know, they either you either are right for it or you're not. And I never really felt. They were turning down my talent. I felt what they were turning down was the fact that they didn't want me at that time. I think the whole idea is to have enough belief and strength in your abilities and then also look at it and say, okay, what are they looking for and what skill can I now hone? What don't I have? A good example is is is, is with Ellen Creighton when I was working in, in sherbrooke Village. What didn't I have? I didn't have a big repertoire. I had some songs that I learned from my family, and I had some songs that I got out of books, but I knew she had a lot more. So you go for the things that you want, and if it doesn't happen, it's not because you didn't go for it.
0: In the mid-70s, you did loop back to your roots in Sherbrooke. Tell us about the new paths you pursued then.
1: That was very serendipitous. Of course, when Along Jubilee ended and I was working with the musical friends, uh, the, the boys in the band from, from Sing Along Jubilee, uh, we had a wonderful band and I was working with the, some of the best musicians in Canada, but we all knew we didn't want to be on the road forever. And I was looking for other things and specifically trying to get back to my, my roots. And when Sherbrooke Village opened up as a museum, I conceived of an idea that what they really should have is a local person who knew the history and some of the folklore and some of the stories who could also sing some of the traditional songs from a Victorian era in, in Nova Scotia. So I applied, and, and, uh, and lo and behold, I, I, I created a job for myself. I said, this is the kind of thing that you need to have down here. It's basically a wandering troubadour, and um, they bought it. It turned out to be life-changing in many ways because then we moved down to the big family homestead which my, uh, was my grandfather's and then eventually my parents so Sharon and I had a place to, to live we learned many different crafts and things down there Sharon developed even more of her skills as a, as a dressmaker because she had been doing that when we got married and then eventually went and studied at Dell and eventually took over the costume department so those kinds of things just keep morphing into your life uh, it's like it's like when we talk about going after something and and wanting it, Sharon knew she wanted to work more in costuming. So, she, at, at, as a mature student, she decided to take the costume studies program at Dell. And then, eventually, because of that, got the job creating the first costume official, the costume department in Sherbrooke Village. And then went back and, and eventually, taught at Dell for a, a couple of a couple of terms. But it's that kind of thing of, of seeing the opportunity and trying it. Now, Sherbrooke Village could have just as easily said no. Just as easily said no. A good example is. While I was at Sherbrooke Village, again, I sort of thought, okay, that's just a seasonal job. I still need something that's going to work a little bit better. When Halifax first announced that they were they were uh, taking applications for a town crier, I applied. I didn't know what a town crier was, <laughs> but I sort of thought, okay, it's, it's a gig in Halifax, and I didn't get it. Of course, they they chose you know, they chose Peter who, who who's better, who's better than, than than Peter to be the, our, our our town crier for many many years.
0: Oh, well, Peter Cox, yes.
1: Peter Cox, yeah. But be, because of that, Alex Clavel at the Clipper K saw my application, found out more about me in Sherbrooke Village, and said, "Okay, you're a troubadour there. I want somebody like that at my restaurant in Halifax." And he was able to offer me a year's contract at a time. And as you know, for a for a freelance artist to get a year's contract at a time. Sharon and I just ran to the bank with that
0: that sucker to get a mortgage. <laughs> now, there is, a, you've already mentioned, a, a really central figure in your life and in this memoir, Helen Creighton, uh, yes. who recorded about 4,000 songs and collected stories and photographs all around Nova Scotia. How did you initially connect?
1: Again, you give it a stab. I didn't know her. I knew what she did not as much as i do now of course but i (laughs) I knew that 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 here was somebody that probably had more songs that weren't in her books that she collected from the Sherbrooke area, because I had read her autobiography, I knew she had. She, I knew she had collected songs in the Sherbrooke area. In fact, there was a, a story. My my mom always tells me a story that she didn't go down to Sonora, or she would have been collecting from my great grandparents who were living there at the time because they were they were known singers. But I just looked her name up in the phone book. I called her up, I told her who I was, what I was doing, and would she be able to send me in the direction of finding songs. And probably a week later, I got this single spaced, four or five page type list of songs. There's no computer database back then. Uh, She would have led to look through her files, then go to the archives and look through her files as well and find out all these songs and the singers that sang them and give me the list. And then she said, when you come back to Halifax, come and see me and we'll try to explore how you can learn these songs.
0: Uh, You had to learn professional archiving techniques eventually to catalog Helen Creighton's collections, and that took years of work. Uh, You also performed songs, she'd gathered. Uh, Oh, indeed. You occasionally gave public presentations on her work. You wrote a biography. Mm -hmm. But but I understand certain academics sniffed that you were a mere popularizer of her Mm, research. What, What did you make of that?
1: Well, I was in good company because Helen Creighton is considered a popularizer. Anybody that doesn't have uh, an academic credential uh, working in the field of folklore, which people didn't have when Helen Creighton first started out, because the, the, the field was, was very fledgling. You were, you were maybe a historian or an ethnomusicologist or something, and the field of folklore was very new. And I understand that, because I'm not interested in being an academic folklorist. I admire the work that they do, and I have worked in that field myself. I have published many things in, in academic journals and, and, and publications, but what... The academic folklorist will do is that they will look at it and then then examine it for its its context and, and where it fits in the society. I do the same thing, only I also bring it forward and interpret it. Now, most folklorists that I know are also performers, so even even the the very well known folklorists will still perform the songs. But I've because I don't have the degree, I'm considered a popularizer. But what is interesting is that my friend Beverly Diamond, who's considered one of the preeminent folklorists in Canada now, uh, invited me over to Memorial University to give a keynote lecture on exactly that, of, of where the popularizer and where the academic folklorist need to blend their work and, and, and bring it out to a more public sense. A good example is, I mean, somebody can write a song on the fiddle styles from Upper Muscadabit. You know, it could be a paper. Uh, who's going to see that? Five people that read it in the journal. If Gordon Stovey goes in and learns three of those songs and performs them all across Canada, gee, he's a popularizer, <laughs> <laughs> but he's, 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 he's acknowledging and sharing what the tradition bearers have given. I'm, I'm very proudly a popularizer because these people that gave their material, their songs, their stories to the folklorist, to the collector they're they're the heroes in fact that's what helen creighton said to me when i started to collect on my own she said clary remember you know you are the student they are the teacher and that that's the important thing that's what the popularizer can do as long as it is done with respect now when somebody goes in and takes material and uses it as their own unfortunately uh, um, one of the great american folklorists did that Alan lomax he took a couple of lead tunes and 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 it sort of called them his own uh and it took years to get that over with so there's gray areas on both sides
0: for some reason this is lodged in the back of my brain there was a criticism years ago that she didn't record new original songs that people you know made up to take jabs at political issues or establishment figures you know the the existing status quo uh
1: Actually, um, if people, uh, the, the people that write those things, if they took the time to actually go into her collection, they would, they would find that there's a, there's a substantial amount of material there. Um, but one of the things is, a good example is, uh, she's been criticized for not, not collecting body material, like the, what we consider dirty songs or sexually, uh, sexually explicit songs and things like that. Um, a single woman going into a community would be run out on a rail if she had done that. You know, some of the some of the mail collectors were able to Get away with that With collecting from, from, from men So she had to be Very circumspect About what she could Actually collect And keep going back Into the communities Now as far as, as uh, Some of the topical songs The local songs Helen always said to me I remember In fact I remember When, when certain incidents happened There'd be a, an incident Happened at sea Or something like that And Helen would say Well I hope somebody Writes a song about that One of the things Is, is if you go into Helen's collection You find a lot of songs About local shipwrecks About the uh, mining disasters and things like that but they're they're not all that good <laughs> you know they're, they're sung to the tune of and it's it's uh, it's honest from the heart poetry but it, it's not something that you would put in a book and, and put out there that is another whole thing for somebody to to look at and, and examine how those things have evolved and, and and that they're still there getting back to your point about some of the political aspects of it yes Helen was a product of her age, and especially during the Cold War, she was very, very reticent about about socialism or anything like that, communism, things like that. So she actually did collect some of the socialist songs. She didn't like them. She did collect them. But some of the criticism has been aimed in the fact that she didn't publish them or she didn't promote them. And part of that was because some of the singers that sang them for her said, and don't you put that in a book because they'll come and they'll beat me up
0: and she had to respect that wish
1: the whole idea of being a collector if you want to go back into the into the community again you have to respect the community from which you're collecting and i think that's that's the difference between certain collectors uh, ethnographers anthropologists they'll go in Maybe start to examine the lifestyle, examine the the morals, examine the mores of, of a society and not worry about whether they even need to go back and look those people in the eye again. That's that, that fine line between being a popularizer and a, and a folklorist. I mean, the, the, the honesty that you need to have to talk about whether somebody could sing or not and whether their, their diction was there or what their, their physicality. You know, do you really describe somebody that takes their teeth out and, and, and sings, or do you, do you not do that in so much that you want to respect them and don't want them to be a laughingstock in a book?
0: She also gave you some interesting advice once upon a time, and uh, I found you returning to it. She told you if, if you had any doubts about the way you were interpreting uh, one of the songs, to go back to the original. And that surfaced in a really interesting African Nova Scotian music project years later. Yes,
1: exactly. That's, and and I told, told people... Thousands of times when people get in touch with me and they say, oh, "I want to learn this folk song I want to do that um, you know I want to do a piano version of this or I want to do a choral arrangement of that and I say, "Great Helen was all for interpretation, and most most collectors are they, they love to see the work interpreted used as long as you keep the integrity of the material and that that certainly happened in my early years of working with Helen, I would, I would maybe sing something and, and she'd say, oh, that's, that's nice, you know, but can you meet me at the archives? I want to play you the original. And I'd listen to that. And I'd think, oh, okay. She didn't have to, she didn't have to castigate me. She didn't have to say, well, you're really screwing that one up. But, but here's, it was, and then I could take it and, and interpret it in the other way. And that's what's happening with uh, some of the material, and especially the important material that Helen collected that nobody was really collecting back in the day. She was collecting Gaelic material. She didn't even, she couldn't speak the language or anything like that. But Marius Barbo at the museum, she said, what do I do with this stuff? He said, collect it. Somebody will use it later on. And she took that lesson and she said, okay, in the 1940s, the early 1940s, I can collect, uh, at, at that time it was called Negro music, I can collect music from African uh, Nova Scotians. I can collect music from the indigenous people, I can collect Mi'kmaq material, even though I can't speak the language it's not my culture, but if I record it and save it, and that's the value of, of that kind of thing she, she did that, and now people within that community, and from outside the community, are working with that like the recent project uh, that we just did, I, I produced for the Helen Creighton Folklore Society, brought out uh, uh, recordings of Helen made in the African Nova Scotian community, worked with my friend Dr. Henry Bishop, in making sure that the liner notes were correct and then the the documentation was, was was proper bring that material forward because if if you don't bring it forward people don't even know it's buried in the Helen Creighton collection and fortunately there's a number of people now that are doing that going in and revisiting it and bringing it forward and that's what Helen always said she said the most important thing I did was to collect it and now it's other up to other people to use it
0: And you had that wonderful example of a recording session at CBC of one of those songs she had collected, and it just wasn't happening that night. Yeah, yeah. And and you you went over and you played. The original. Tell us what happened next.
1: Well, again, you know, it was that was that was a gift session. Uh, that was uh, the first one we did called uh, "Lord, You Brought Me a Mighty Long Way." Work with the, the CBC and the, the the Black Cultural Center, and it was a double CD. We we I had done the uh, I had been the producer for the archival CD of Helen's material, plus some other material from from various collections in in Nova Scotia from from uh, African Nova Scotian informants, and then we brought new performers into the CBC studio at Studio H and re-recorded some of the material in a, in a new contemporary way and also brought new material that was being written by African uh, Nova Scotians. But they were they had brought in a, like a mixture. They, they did a mixture church choir and uh, they were singing one of the songs from Helen's collection and it was just a little flat. And I remember saying to uh, uh, Carl Falkenham and Glenn Meisner who were the fabulous CBC producers and uh, the musical director Director Woody Woods saying, "It's, it's. Can I just? Can you ask? Can you cue up that thing and 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 pipe it out into the studio?" And I and I went out and I said, "Look, this is this is the version that Helen collected, and I just want you to hear it." And uh, I stood out there with them while they listened to it, and you could see the eyes were sparkling, and they're saying, "I know that voice. That's my uncle," and they were hearing the genuine passion that was in the voice. And uh, I walked back in. I think uh, Woody said, "We're going to have another take." Played it, boom. It was just magical.
0: When you were a kid in Sherbrooke and in Halifax, you went back and forth, uh, you developed an interest in sketching and designing and and making clothing. Tell us how that developed over the decades. Well, I think, again, uh, we talked earlier about my influences in
1: Sherbrooke. I had the great influence of my great-grandfather edward burns he was a light keeper at wedge island at the mouth of the saint mary's river he was a boat builder he was a fisherman he had the last hereditary salmon birth on the saint mary's river he was a folk artist he carved he painted he drew and and that was and and he i remember being around eight or nine sitting on the steps of the big house in sherbrooke i'm on the bottom he's up at the uh, a couple steps up above me and he's teaching me how to knit because he said every man should know how to cook his own meals and knit his own socks. So that whole coming to art came, fortunately, from the direction of a very strong male figure, and a lot of boys don't have that if if they're, if, they're, if, they're, if they if they want to move into art or especially the arts where are normally considered. Not so much nowadays, but certainly back in the 50s, as, as women's art. You know, I, I was interested in the embroidery that my, my grandmother was doing and those kinds of things. So I, I, I was never sort of said, OK, well, those, those are girl things. So the, it, never. It, it was, that was never part of it. But on the other hand. As you mentioned, I I started to draw and sketch, and uh, I in the sixties I drew these mod fashions. I don't ever remember <laughs> making men's fashions, but I do, and I and I came to realize that what I re- was really interested in was the, the the design aspect of it and the the the, uh, the graphic of it, and because of that, I think I moved into the weaving. When I when I uh, was in Sherbrooke Village, I, I I became fascinated with weaving, and I learned to become a very good weaver, and in fact, for 20 years, I had my own high-end Swedish loom and wove fabric for the design business, Croft Designs, that Sharon and I had for 20 years that we ran out of our home.
0: How do you divide your time these days? Oh,
1: <laughs> I have so many irons in the fire, but I have an incredibly what else is new <laughs> relaxed lifestyle. Um, just before you called, Sharon and I set out with our binoculars and our bird book and watched birds and had our cappuccino that I make for us every morning we just have a wonderful lifestyle I've got a couple of other projects on the go for the Helen Creighton Folklore Society we love to visit with friends uh, I'm, I learn new material I love working with my friend uh, Russell Brannan uh, doing these these contemporary songs that we have a whole YouTube site set up there with me going back to my early days when I was a, a, a teenager singing uh, jazz and popular standards with a, with a dance band at the Jubilee Boat Club so it's that kind of thing that, that allows me to do whatever I want to do now um it, it's it's incredibly flexible. Well, we're glad you decided to do this memoir. It's been, it's been tremendous fun, and the, the, the wonderful thing about it, Costas, is, is that you know you and I were talking earlier about how it sparked a lot of your memories and how, how we had so much in common, and you don't realize that, but the Maritimes are pretty small. But I guess the other thing is, is that I have talked to so many people since this has come out, and I've always been a big encourager for people to write their own story and save their own photographs and document them and label them and things like that. I'm hearing from more and more people say I'm going to write down my stories now. I'm going to I'm going to start. Whether it, it may never be a published book that's out there being flogged in a dog and pony show by a guy who's out there doing readings, but it's still valuable information that that just needs to be saved.
0: And since you included so many photographs uh, in the book, nobody can blackmail you with pictures of the some of the outfits you wore at Sing Along Jubilee. Again,
1: head him off at the pass. <laughs>
0: Clary, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. A real pleasure, Costa. Take care. Clary Croft is the author of My Charmed Life in Music, Art, and Folklore. It's published by Nimbus. If you'd like to comment on today's podcast with Clary, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. We have quite a catalogue of conversations for you with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, the authors, illustrators, editors, and designers, all on bookmepodcast.ca. On Instagram, get an alert every time we post a new interview. Just follow at bookmepodcast. If you're in the Lunenburg County area, you can hear one of our podcasts every evening on the nonprofit radio station CHLU 93.7 FM just before sign off around 9 o'clock. BookMe is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. The podcast leads a charmed life on social media thanks to Laura Hines. This is my final podcast for Book Me. I'd like to thank my original producer, Robin Grant, for calling me to talk about this idea she and Terry Lee Bulger of Nimbus had about a podcast of conversations with authors of all things. Special thanks to Lynn Fox, our technician back when we used to do face-to-face interviews in the Halifax Central Library studio, a far cry from my basement where today's interview was recorded off a cell phone and will be edited on a laptop. But check our website, Twitter, and Instagram to find out we will get to do this wonderful gig next. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read.